John chapter 13 this morning. John 13. We'll begin reading in verse 16. And we'll read all the way down to verse 32. John 13, 16. We've looked at some of these verses last Lord's Day, but we'll begin uh, there uh, again this day and um, because they pertain to what follows. John 13, 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, come that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a sop. When I have dipped it, and when he had dipped the sop, He gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. And then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. And therefore, when he was gone, gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightly Glorify him. I'll leave off reading there in verse 32. In this text, we see three groups who are involved with the Son of Man and with his Father being glorified. The first is the Son of God, sent by the Father, also called the Son of Man, coming to the end of his ministry now, only a few days away from Calvary, always doing the Father's will, fulfilling that will in going to the cross of Calvary so that he might save his people from their sins. The Son of God is now glorified. The second is the servants of the Lord who are with him at the table, called out of darkness and sin, called out of the kingdom of Satan, and kept from the power of Satan to eternal life. 
those who stayed faithful to him will glorify the Son of God. But there is a third, the servants of Satan. Judas, particularly in the context, one of the original twelve, but also the chief priest and the religious leaders in Israel. God will use them to glorify the Son of Man and glorify himself in heaven. These three groups are here in this text. Our text reveals that our Lord taught his disciples at this time the truth concerning Christianity. They were gathered at Bethany, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. They were having a meal at the house of Lazarus and at Martha's and Mary's house. Martha was serving them. During that time, Mary anointed our Lord's feet with an ointment in John chapter 12, verse 3. Judas disapproved and rebuked her. The eleven joined him for a while, but our Lord rebuked Judas and recognized Mary's sacrificial gift in verse 7 of John 12. His rebuke, I believe, added to what was already in Judas's heart. Rebuke resulted in the manifestation of the hatred Judas had for the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs says in a negative, Reprove not a scorner lest he hates you. Positively, if you reprove a scorner, he is going to hate you. The rest of that verse says, Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Twelve were involved in reproving Mary for her sacrifice. Eleven, when rebuked, continued to love the Lord Jesus Christ. But one, but one, Judas Iscariot, had this stirring in his heart. Amos chapter 5 verse 10 says, They hate him that rebuketh in the gate. They abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Judas, rebuked by our Lord publicly for speaking against Mary's sacrifice, something stirred in his heart about this hatred that he had toward the Lord Jesus Christ. In a few chapters later, in John chapter 15, our Lord will say, He that hateth me hateth my father also. John 15, 23. All of them gathered The rebuke has been given. No one knows what's going on in the heart of Judas. As the meal continued, our Lord rose from the table and girded himself with a towel as though he were a common servant. And taking the place of a servant, he washed the feet of the twelve. Judas Iscariot included. After washing their feet, he returned to the table and began to instruct them concerning those concerning his purpose in washing their feet. We find that in chapter 13, verse 12. During that time, our Lord taught his disciples that true Christianity is revealed in a life of loving service toward true believers. He says that in verse 14 and 15. You saw what I did. You ought to do what I did. You take my example and you live that way. I preached on that last Lord's Day, the last two Sundays. During that time, our Lord taught his, also told his disciples 
that the relationship between him and his disciples is a master-servant relationship. The servant is not greater than the master. We saw that last Lord's Day. He is both Lord and Savior in the life of all those who repent and believe on Him. We saw that. We sang about it this morning. My King, my God. My Master. His instructions culminated in the statement in John 3, 17, where we closed out Lord's last, day, last Lord's Day. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. He reveals that Christians find true happiness in knowing and understanding their calling as a servant and in doing that for which they have been called. That brings us up to our text this morning. Immediately after giving instructions concerning true Christianity about being a servant, immediately our Lord reveals, He's sitting at the table Immediately he reveals that Judas was in the process of betraying him. Verse 18. I speak not of you all, he says. If you know these things and, and do them, you're happy. The next verse. But I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. I want to spend some time in this verse because the next couple of verses following hinge upon our understanding what is going on in verse 18. First, these words were spoken of Judas Iscariot. He had been with our Lord from the beginning. He had been called with the other eleven. He had been given the same ability to preach the gospel. The same authority to baptize those that believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same power to cast out demons and heal the sick. Go with me over to Mark chapter 6 because I want you to see uh, these next two verses that I want you to, uh, that I'm going to, or next three verses that I'm going to quote. Mark chapter 6 will begin in verse 7. Speaking of our Lord calling the twelve, the Bible says in Mark 6, 7, And he called unto him the twelve. And began to send them forth by two and two. And gave them power over unclean spirits. All twelve of them. Drop down to verse twelve. And they went out and preached that men should repent. All twelve of them. And they cast out many devils. And anointed with oil many that were sick. And healed them. All twelve of them. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 17, when Peter is addressing the church at Jerusalem, he says concerning Judas, For he was numbered with us and obtained part of this ministry. Acts 1.17 He was with the twelve from the beginning. He preached the gospel. He baptized. He, he, he healed the sick. He cast out demons. In that early days of our Lord's ministry, He warned all of His disciples, all of them, about their ministry, about their life, and about the fruit that would be born in their ministry. We see this in Matthew chapter 7. Go with me over there. Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, after 
speaking about false prophets in verse 15, Matthew 7, after speaking about uh, false prophets, Matthew 7, not Mark. Our Lord says in verse 16, You shall know them, referring to the false prophets, by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? And then verse 19, Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And then drop down to verse 21. Not every one that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Our Lord warns those that he has called into the gospel ministry and warns the gospel preachers in general that just because you preach the gospel and baptize and have the ability to cast out demons and heal doesn't mean you know the Lord Jesus Christ. The next thing we learn from the scripture is our Lord knew from the beginning that Judas Iscariot was not a believer and knew from the beginning that he would betray him. Go back over to the John's Gospel, this time chapter 6. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6 and verse 64, John 6, 64, we read, Our Lord saying, But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. Drop down to verse 70. Jesus says, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He had chosen him, knowing in advance that he would not come to faith in Christ, and knowing in advance that he would betray him to the chief priests and to the religious leaders. The fourth thing about Judas Iscariot is our Lord also knew when it was that Judas was tempted and when it was that he was possessed of the devil. In John chapter 13 in verse 2, we read, The devil having now put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now this is critical because the, later in this chapter, none of the eleven know that Judas has, is going out to betray Christ. None of them know who his true condition. He leaves and they're thinking maybe he's going to give money to the poor. Or maybe he's going to buy some food for the Passover. They don't know what's going on in his heart. But here in John chapter 13 verse 2, God pulls back the veil of the heart of Judas And we learn that at that meal with the disciples, Satan put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray the Son of God. Drop down to chapter 13, verse 27. We read that in this morning's reading where the scripture says, And after the sop, 
Satan entered into him. And then said Jesus unto him, Thou, that thou doest, doest quickly. Again, the disciples are not aware of what is going on in this man's heart. So we come to chapter 7, uh, 13, and we read verse 18, and we see these words, I speak, speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. And it's reference to Judas. But our Lord continues. That's not the only thing that he says here in this verse. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. That the scripture may be fulfilled. The quote here is from Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, 9. Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which should eat my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41, 9. In the context of Psalm 41, 9, the psalm speaks of Ahithophel, who joined forces with David's son Absalom in an attempt to overthrow David and to dethrone him. David had trusted him, but he betrayed David. Our Lord pulls out of Psalm 41, 9, plants it in the New Testament, and speaks and applies it to Judas Iscariot, as Judas is in the process of betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a difference. I don't know if you caught the words that David said and the words that Christ left out. David said, Mine own familiar friend who, in whom I trusted. Our Lord does not quote that portion of that psalm. There is a difference between David and the Lord Jesus Christ. David is a man. He is not omniscient. He puts his trust in a man and a man betrays him. David could not have known that was going to happen. David did not know that, was, that it would happen. David trusted him. But our Lord is omniscient God. He knows all things. Our Lord never trusted Judas. Not in that sense. He knew him to be a devil from the beginning. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. For those of you that know the scriptures, you, maybe your mind will go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 15, where Satan will have his heel, head crushed by the heel of the Messiah. Messiah's heel would be lifted up against Satan. But here in this text... Satan's emissary raises up his heel against Messiah. Judas had eaten many meals with the Lord Jesus Christ. How many meals had they eaten together since he had been called to come and follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Judas was at Bethany and at the very table where Martha was serving that meal. He was eating, in the process of eating with our Lord Jesus Christ and the rest of the disciples who were present there. And our Lord had washed his feet with, with the other eleven. He had returned to the table and Judas was at that table as they continued to eat. And yet during that time, in, the, in that moment of time, Satan had filled his heart 
with a commitment to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. He had filled his heart with a commitment to reject Christ and betray him before the elders of Israel. Like Satan, Judas had raised his heel against the Lord. Also like Satan, Judas Iscariot would not be successful in its in the total destruction of Christ. He would be successful in betraying Him. The Jews would be successful in sending Him to the cross. But they did not understand that all of that was working together to bring God glory. To bring God glory. God overcame His betrayal. God overcame their sham trial. God overcame everything that they were planned against Him by the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to take His place upon His throne. He overcame all of their evil attempts and all of their evil in machinations, as our, my good friend Gordon Bayless used to say. Happy are you if you do these things. But I speak not of you all. I know who am I? I have chosen. That the scripture should be fulfilled. You eat bread with me and raise your heel against me. And then immediately, verse 19. Now I tell you before it come, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. They already believe that he is the I am. They already believe He is Messiah. They already believe and have confessed that He is God, that He is the only one that can give eternal life, and He is the only one who has the words of everlasting life. They already believe that. They have come to that firm conviction of heart. And yet He says, I say these words in advance of them happening, so that when they happen, you can see them and you can believe. The same thought or language is found in John 14 in verse 29. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it come to pass you might believe. But they are already believers. What is he saying here? First, let me say, none of the disciples knew the true spiritual condition of Judas Iscariot. Chapter 13, verses 27 through 30 reveal that they have no idea what is going on with Judas. Our Lord had told them that the one receiving the sop, the sop, children, that's a, that's a piece of bread dipped in some sauce, maybe the gravy or oil, and then uh, usually the host or usually some friend would dip it in and give it to you as a kind of a token you're sharing a meal together. I remember when I was in uh, Malaysia, we, would, uh, we had a meal together and in a village area. And the way they did it there is they set all the food in the middle, the rice and a and, uh, little bit of meat and vegetable. All of it was in the middle of the table and you were given a little... Uh, and you reached in with your hands and you got what you wanted and everybody at the table sort of reached in and got what they wanted, right? <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, okay... Yeah, went in Rome, right? And so reached in and grabbed me a handful of rice and reached in. Everybody was sitting around eating the meal together and we were sharing the food together. 
And it would not be uncommon for someone to say, Brother, taste this. This is good. And put it on your plate. And the Lord is sitting around this table and he's eating and he's, they're breaking bread and they're eating what Martha is serving. And he takes a piece of bread and he dips it into whatever he dips it into and he gives it to Judas. And Satan feels him. And the disciples don't know what's going on. But he had told them, the one I give the sop to, that's the one that's going to betray me. He had just said that. But they had no ears to hear it. They could not grasp. They couldn't see what was going on. And, 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 and God knew. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ knew they weren't seeing it. And knew the day would come when they would remember this event. And remember that he had told them in advance. And their faith would be strengthened by that. Their faith would be strengthened. They did not understand but when they would remember the word that he had said, later on they would remember. And when they did, it would strengthen their faith. They would believe I am. They would believe that he is who he said he was. Because he knew in advance. He knows something about the depths of a man's heart. We don't. We remember sitting at the table. We remember thinking Judas was going out to give money to the poor, buy some food for the Passover. And he knew in the depths of his heart, that Satan had filled it to betray him. This is a God we serve. He knows the heart. And he knows the events that are going to unfold in front of us. And their faith would be strengthened when they remembered that account. Their faith would be strengthened. And then he says in verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth Whosoever I sin, receiveth me, and he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. How does this fit in what's going on here? At first, at least to me, perhaps not to you, but at first this verse seems to be out of place. Until you realize the Lord is speaking of the ministry of the twelve including Judas Iscariot. Our Lord had already mentioned those He sent. John 13, 16 says, The servant is not greater than the master. That's what we preached on last Lord's Day. But it goes on to say, Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. I did not deal with that last Lord's Day because I knew I would be dealing with it this morning. Judas was chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been sent out with the, two, with the eleven to preach the gospel, to baptize those who were believers. He sent with power to heal the sick and, and to cast out demons and to do other miracles. This is his ministry. No doubt. Some had believed through his ministry. Once it was discovered that he was an imposter and that he betrayed the Lord, what would those who were converted under his ministry going to think of their spiritual condition? In this text, our Lord is teaching that the human instrument is his choice, but the spiritual work 
is accomplished by him. In the end, a preacher may not be a true servant of the Lord. In the end, he may betray or go back on what he had said all along. I've lived long enough in my ministry now to have known some men who started well but did not end well. As I get older, I pray, God, let me finish well. I don't want to just finish. I want to finish well. In the end, the preacher may not be what he said he was. But the work of salvation is not in his hand, but it's in the hands of God. It's a work of God, not a work of any man. If you received God's message through one who later falls away, that doesn't mean you're lost. If you were genuinely converted, you were safe. Why? Because it's not His work that, done the, that saved you, but God's work that saved you. Listen to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. God gives to men ministers by whom they believe. I have planted Apollos water. But what? God gave the increase. He goes on to verse 7. We usually stop there in verse 6 and rejoice that God is the one who does the work. But verse 7, he goes on to say, So then, neither is he that planteth anything. Paul is the planter. Paul, are you anything? No, I'm nothing. In the great scheme of things, I'm nothing. What about the one watering? Neither he that, plant, he that watereth. He's nothing either. He's not anything either. And then what do we look to if, if we don't look to an apostle preaching to us? What do we look to? But God that giveth the increase. Now that is the one that means something. That is what is important. The question I've often asked over the years of my ministry is, what has God done for you? People say, well, I was converted under brother so-and-so. Do you know? I said, yeah, I know that brother. I said, and my question, what has God done for you? I don't want to know what brother so-and-so has done. I don't want to know what brother so-and-so said. What has God done in your heart? Because salvation is about God. It's about a sinner meeting with a Savior who come together and their sin being forgiven and they're joined together inseparably with everlasting life being bestowed upon them. It's about what God has done. So the question this morning in the minds of those when they discover that Judas betrays the Lord is, he preached the gospel. He baptized with the disciples. John chapter 4 or 3, wherever it was found. John 4. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. Am I genuine? Am I a genuine follower of Christ? Because he betrayed him. God brethren, is glorified in the salvation of sinners despite who the preacher is.
I have often said of men who I completely disagree with theologically, if God saves someone, it's despite what's going on, not because of what's going on. But I say the same thing about myself. God is glorified in the salvation of, dis- of sinners despite the error of the one delivering the message. What if he has a slip up and says something he shouldn't say? What if he actually says something that is error? What if he leaves out the doctrine of repentance and a man repents and believes under his ministry? God is glorified in the salvation of sinners despite the attitude of the one preaching. That was a little difficult for me. I put down these three thoughts and I said, can I actually back up that third one? And I thought about Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 14, many of the brethren of the Lord, having waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. And some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Because they're preaching against me. The other, out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, Paul says? What about that? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. That's a hard one, isn't it, brother? That's a hard one. Let me quickly add this, because the Bible also substantiates the next statement I'm going to make. This truth does not allow us to condone those who end up being false prophets. Neither does it allow us to simply let them do what they want to do in the kingdom of God and just let them have free course to do whatever they want to do. We must rise up and speak against the error. We are still instructed to know those who are false prophets. You shall know them. How are we to know them? Well, we are instructed to know them. We are instructed to know them who are false. We are instructed to know their false doctrine, to try the spirits whether they be of God or not, and then to reprove them for their false doctrine. And someone comes out of there under the preaching of the gospel and says, I, I thought I was saved. I, I thought God did something. Well, tell me what God did. That's what I want to hear about. I don't want to hear about what brother so-and-so did. I want to hear what God did. Tell me what God did. And in the process of telling me what God did, then I can discern whether or not God has done something. Or whether they have believed the lie of a false prophet and need better instruction. And so our Lord deals with this issue. Happy are you if you do these things, if you know and do these things. But not all of you. Because one of you is going to betray me. And when you betray me, I'm telling you in advance, it's going to happen. And I want you to understand, not only in advance that it's going to happen, which means I know about these things, and that's, I am who I am. 
But I also want you to understand that the one sent is not the greatest thing here. But the one who does the work is the greatest one. The one sent is not above the one who sent him either. And so we come to verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. The word glorified implies that what had been hidden for a time, what had been obscured during our Lord's earthly ministry, is now made manifest before all to see. Glorified may also mean to cause to bestow dignity and worthiness on an individual, in this case the Lord Jesus Christ. And that dignity and worthiness bestowed is made manifest so that people can see that dignity and worthiness and acknowledge it. Now is the Son of Man dignified and counted worthy of all that is before Him. Now is the Son of Man glorified, manifest in a way that He has not been manifest for the last three plus years. Why now? And not previous times. Why not now and not at His birth? When the angels sang, the Bible doesn't speak of God being glorified at that moment. What? Why now and not at his baptism? Now the heavens opened and God spoke. But nothing is said about now is the Son of God glorified at his baptism. What about the transfiguration? God spoke and so did Moses and Elijah. But nothing is said about now is the Son of God glorified. But they're sitting at a table. And he's just washed their feet. And Satan has entered Judas. And he's about to betray him. And Christ says, Now is the Son of God, Son of Man glorified. Can the Son of Man be glorified by a betrayer? Yes. Because God can get glory out of anything. How is the Lord glorified in the betrayal that Judas betrayed him with, with which Judas betrayed him? The world sees the betrayal of Judas Iscariot as a defeat. You see, some of his own believers went away from him. The world sees the rejection of Israel's religious leaders as a defeat. You see, he came into his own, his own didn't receive him. The world sees the Garden of the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane as a defeat. The sham trial, the beatings, the temporary falling away of his disciples, his death on a Roman cross, all of it a defeat. His burial, a defeat. They see no glory in any of that. But our Lord declares those things to be the means by which he and his Father are glorified. They all point to the Lord's victory over sin and Satan, over death and hell, over the grave and over everything related to the fall of man and to sin. They point to a victory. 
They bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ because all that's going to transpire in the next couple of days is going to satisfy a holy God so that sinners may be saved from their sins. Now is the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man, glorified. He is both God and man at the very same time. He is now glorified because He took upon Himself flesh so that He might take up the place of sinners. He, he might take their sin upon Himself. He might be made sin for them so that He might take the judgment owed for those sins upon Himself so that He might save them from their sins, from the Father's wrath. He might save them from that. And all of that will bring glory to Him. Now is the Son of Man glorified because He accomplished that which no other man has been able to accomplish from the fall of Adam to this moment in time. He accomplished the salvation of sinners. Now is the Son of Man glorified because in His death, He did more than reverse the effects of Adam's fall into sin. In his death, he didn't just bring sinners back up to the same stature where Adam was, mutable, able to change again and fall back into sin. No, in his death, he brought sinners all the way past that into the place where all their sins have been removed and they are justified before God so that their sin never can condemn them before a holy God. And he is glorified in what he has accomplished for them. He not only took sin out of the way, but those who call upon him as their Savior can never fall into sin again. That will cause them to really lose everlasting life. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Because not only did he destroy sin, but he destroyed the power, defeated Satan in all of his power. 1 John 3, 5, And you know that he was manifest to take away sin. But what about Hebrews 2, 14? Through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is, the devil. Sin destroyed. On behalf of those that he died for. Satan's power destroyed. So he has no more power over them. So that when we come to death. Satan does not have the power to keep us there. And one of these days the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say. Pat Horner come up here. Out to the grave. Unless I'm alive. Out to the grave I will come. To meet my Savior forever and ever. What about Satan's power? Oh, that's been broken a long time ago, brother. That's been broken a long time ago. God is glorified in Him because the Son of Man fulfilled the everlasting covenant in agreement with His Father. He did His Father's will, which includes Calvary. So here's the question, or two questions. Do you see can we see in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ the means by which God is glorified in saving sinners? Do you see how this takes away from you that selfishness? I want to get out of hell. I, I, I don't want to go to hell. I think I'll, I think I'll pray this prayer. Maybe that'll help. 
It takes away from you that idea that it's all about you and puts it on the Lord Jesus Christ where the sinner says, Lord, if you will, you can make me whole. You can cleanse me. You can forgive me. I was thinking about uh, a thing that goes is common around here. It's a little kind of a play-like thing. It's called uh, uh, Heaven's Gate and Hell's Door or something like that. And it's a four-day thing, meeting they hold in, in churches here. And it's designed to scare people to make a profession. And, and I know a situation where 40 or 50 people came down at the altar after that. And not one of them were baptized or ever came back to church afterwards. I said, what's wrong with that? Well, all of that's about me. I'm going to get out of hell. I don't want... I, not about what God can do for me. And the second question is this. Do you desire God to be glorified in your salvation? Or are your thoughts about you and about centered upon your religion? You see the difference, brother? You're there without Christ. The heart of a sinner who understands that he must be forgiven to stand before God accepted says, Lord, save me. I can't do it. There's nothing I can do. Lord, save me. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I have nothing, Lord. But you, you on the other hand, you have everything. Come and do for you, me what only you can do for me. Let's pray.